You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos, I hate calling myself that, and underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Today's going to be all about metal. We've got Metal Injections' Frank Godla here with us, um, and I am super excited uh, for this interview, um, not only because Frank's a good friend of ours, but um, I actually have a lot of questions for Frank, and so uh, I, I think we'll get right into this. Frank, uh, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me, Mick, and uh, stoked to be here. How are you guys doing? Yeah, this is super exciting for us. You know, Blacklight Media, you know, was launched a couple of years ago with Brian Slagle from Metal Blade Records. We're making some moves, making the most of uh, of these weird times, and I'm uh, starting to take a more advanced position um, with the company. And Matt is working for us full time, and so we, we're really we're really building some momentum. And part of that is uh, is launching this podcast. And uh, when we were thinking of our initial, you know, the people we wanted to invite initially, um, both Matt and I, I think at the same exact moment, suggested you because for for the two of us you're such a big part of the whole genre at the moment. I, you know, I don't know how you see yourself. It's, everyone sees themselves in a, in a different light. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I actually uh, had that conversation with uh, my friends, Dave and, and you know, you know, John, John Lamaki actually. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we were talking about like how, you know, like you kind of do s- something for so long and you don't really think about like your life kind of the way that others do, you know, like to me, I'm like, I just wake up and I'm a metal head and I just do what I do and I don't really think too much about it, but like, it's cool to hear, you know, stories and kind of other people's opinions and views about like what I do. And it's, it's an amazing feeling to hear that kind of thing, you know, but yeah, I don't, I don't really sit there and think about like what I do is like amazing or, uh, you know, too important or anything like that. I mean, at the end of the day, like I look to, uh, scientists and doctors and the people out there who are doing their thing is, uh, the important people, you know, but it's just, it's so funny you say that just cause, and I think you and I talked about this one of the first times we met, cause like as a teenager, I held you in like complete hero worship. Right. Yeah. You were a teenager last year though, right? Right. I didn't want to say it. I'm glad you did. But <laughs> Look, it was, I was a teenager five years ago, Chris. Okay. Almost six. <laughs> oh my God. How old are you? How old are you, Matt? I don't even fucking know. I'm 24. Uh, 24. Uh, so I, was, I was 18 when I met Frank. I was 25 when you were born, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, the, one of the reasons I was most excited uh, for this particular interview is that I see you, I know you, I see you at the bars, I see you at St. Vitus. Um, I always probably have one too many drinks in me, and I, I tell you how much I love your site and everything. But it's all organic and true. I mean, the weekly injection for me is is like, I, I really like, 
I go to bed thinking about it on Thursday night. And I can't wait to see because you do such a great job of highlighting bands across genres, which I love. But you know, as, as much as I do know you and we've shared concert uh, elbow to elbow experience, I actually don't know your beginnings and how you know how you got from the beginning to to here. Like Matt might know this, but um, I'm sure some of our listeners do not, and I certainly don't. How did you become you know? This guy that has metal injection and has become such an important part of the scene. I've been a metalhead since I was a little kid. My dad was a metalhead and he was what really got me into, you know, uh, listening to heavy metal in the first place, you know, so like he was, he was really young himself. So he, you know, my parents are pretty young for parents and they had me when they were like 20, 21 years old. And so really they were, they were young themselves listening to, you know, like, and part of the times my dad listened to metal in you know uh in his youth and he continued in his adulthood so of course like he was showing me stuff that he grew up with but more importantly the stuff of the time you know so the stuff from the early 80s you know i was listening to twisted sister and and everything and it was really you know when i found metallica guns and roses i would probably say is like my gateway you know, when, when Guns N' Roses came out, but it was, you know, listening to Metallica and, and getting to, you know, something like Ride the Lightning was just the heaviest thing I ever heard in my life. It was so scary, but so inviting and, and weird. And I was just strangely uh, uh, connected to it and I couldn't get more of it. I just kept on going and going. I became such a crazy fanatic for heavy metal because it kind of filled a void in my life. You know, that uh, I didn't really have a lot of friends. I was kind of a, a nerd. I was just, you know, that geek in school who had straight A's and read and, you know, a ton of books and everything. And that's where it really came in, you know, into my life. I, I became a really big fan of heavy metal. And I still, to this day, say that I'm a fan first and foremost, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, my dad wound up, he always wanted to be a drummer, but he kind of pushed me into playing drums. And, you know, what kid wants to be told what to do? Like, you know, any young kid going into piano lessons, I'm sure it felt the same way. I I didn't really want to do it at the time. But, you know, give it a couple more years, I wound up finding it for myself. Mm -hmm. And that's when it really kind of took off. But fast forward, you know, years, of course, I didn't, you know, I was in bands. I did my first U.S. tour and stuff like that when I was 17. Um, But I didn't really know where I fit or what I wanted to do exactly. I just knew that I wanted to be part of music. But what wound up happening is I wound up getting a full-time job and I was putting myself through college at the same time. And I was always a music major. You know, I started in Morrow, Edward R. Morrow. And the reason I chose that school is because Peter Steele of Typo Negative went there. And (laughs) Yeah, I was like really, you know, I was like a teenager, just super into metal. And and it turns out I thought because he went there, it would be like a, you know, a high school full of metalheads. But as it turns out, there was only like two and I was one of them. So, yeah, but it was a really progressive school that really kind of promoted you doing what the things that you want to do. And I actually wound up getting to play a couple cool uh, like guitar shows and stuff like that. I'm a drummer, but like there was always a guitar player looking for a drummer. And there was a couple of kids who were really into dream theater and stuff like that. So I wound up like meeting some other kids. So I, I was always kind of like a, you know, a player and uh, fast forward after school, like, you know, I got wound up getting a, a daytime job, getting into business. And before I knew it, I was deep into business. You know, I was like a business analyst. I was managing a telecommunications uh, center and stuff like that. 
and hating my life really, you know, cause I was, I fell into something that I didn't want to be part of, you know, and, and doing the nine to five. And I just was kind of unhappy and was stuck in this rut that I never really thought I would be in. And that's when I met Rob, uh, my business partner, he was just getting into metal at the time. And he wound up coming in for a job interview out at the place that I was managing. And he came in with a friend and his friend was wearing an Opeth t-shirt at the time that people didn't really know who Opeth was yet. But I walked in the room and I pointed to both of them and I was like, I don't know what your story is, but you're both hired just based on that t-shirt alone. <laughs> That's great. And so I wound up hiring, his name was Greg and, and Rob, my partner. And Rob used to come spend his uh, his lunch periods, his lunch hours over in my office. And I would just like kind of talk to him about metal and tell him about the history of metal and all these great bands from the 80s and 90s. And, you know, seeing these amazing shows when I was like 15, 16. And, you know, I saw so many shows as a kid growing up. And, you know, he, he was really getting into it and, and, you know, he would go home and kind of listen to these bands and explore. And one day he came in, he's like, Hey man, like, you know, you know so much about metal and, you know, you obviously really love this more than anyone I ever met. Have you ever considered creating like a TV show about it? You know? And the truth is I hadn't, but I kind of went home that day and that really set the ball in motion. So metal injection actually started a lot like Wayne's world. We started as a fun friend get together thing, and we, like we would just make stupid comedy sketches. And I used to be a, a, a VHS tape trader back in the day in the '90s, so I had a lot of videos and I had a lot of music videos for bands and stuff like that. And I would just splice the comedy sketches that we would do. Uh, that I would put them in with uh, with the music videos, you know. So you might see a dumb comedy sketch, and then you know. Uh, an in flames video from the nineties or something like that, you know? And, uh, that's kind of, it was a 28 minute show and I would drop it off to the Brooklyn cable access television. And we would hand out flyers outside of shows, to, you know, to watch our TV show. And we wound up getting the attention of, uh, labels and labels would start sending me VHS tapes to my house. Shortly after that, we would get in touch with them to try and do interviews and stuff like that with bands what wound up happening is we saw the internet as something that could potentially be something someday, you know, because this is back in 2003. Cause you know, the thing is that with cable access television, we would do our show and it would be here and be gone. You know what I mean? So like there was no way of ever watching it back. And if you missed it, you missed it type deal. So naturally we're just like, you know, Oh, well we should try and get this on the web and have it archived so that people can watch when that, whenever they want to, you know? And to do that was just such a huge hurdle, you know, because we actually launched the website January 1st, 2004, which was nine months before YouTube ever existed. Wow. So if you imagine what, how hard it was to put video on the web before YouTube existed, you know, it had a lot of hurdles and, you know, we had to use, uh, archive players and it cost a lot of money, but you know, it was something that I was really passionate about. And, you know, I wish I could tell you that it was like a success story right away because it most certainly was not. I was so adamant about like this kind of reinvigorated my love of heavy metal and trying to be part of the metal scene all over again. You know, I actually, for a while I wasn't playing, I wasn't really, you know, going to shows for a couple of years and stuff like that. 
but I went full back into, you know, to full force because, and I never really should have left it. I regretted it. You know, I took like five years off from drumming or something like that. And I, you know, I wound up getting back into it and, and I figured like the, Hey, this is kind of what I want to do. This is, this is it. This is, you know, I, I couldn't figure it out before, but this is what I want to do. And really pushed hard, you know, like to try and make the show something to make the, the website something. And it didn't really work out, you know, for a couple of years, uh, maybe about three years in, I wound up uh, getting unemployment because the company wound up shutting down. I, I happily took the unemployment so that I can use that time period to try and make metal injection a viable thing to live off of. But it didn't work out. I wound up having to go get another job. And I was a business analyst for a while. That company wound up relocating to Maine and offered to uh, you know, reposition me in Maine. I was just like, nope, give me unemployment. <laughs> And I went back on unemployment and I tried again and it didn't work. I wound up having to go get a job. I wish I could tell you the third time's a charm because of this third time I wound up quitting my job to try and make metal injection a thing. And it did not work then either. I wound up having to go back to work. The happy accident in all of this is that I think it took about maybe five or six years. But finally, after about six years, you know, when I was just finally kind of content between like my work life and, and my second work life, like, you know, I considered like mental injection, like my second job. So I, I would work like a full eight hour day and then spend another eight hours working on it, you know, on metal injection. At some point, like we just wound up making enough in advertising money where we were like, all right, well, hey, we can we can quit our day job now. And that's that was just like the wildest moment, you know, like to think that like, wow, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm just going to be paid to be a metalhead and do what I do, you know? <laughs> That's amazing. Sounds like a dream job, actually. So what year was that, 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 that you were able to quit your day job? Well, we started January 1st, 2004, but, and to be honest with you, I don't know exactly when we quit our day job. I mean, to be honest with you, all I know is like we're coming up on year 17 now of the website. And it's all a blur. You know, I don't, I mean, there's so much to do every single day. And I just don't have that great of a memory to begin with that I can't re remember a date like that. You know what I mean? Like, there's just yeah. so much work to do every day that, yeah, I don't really think about those kind of things. Who's, um, you know, who's the we behind this? You, you know, you keep saying we, and but to me, you've always been metal injection to me. But, you know, that's obviously because we're friends and. Right. I do have a partner, uh, Rob, and we have about 21 different writers as well. You know, I mean, like there's it's, wow. it's a big uh, we have reviewers, you know, news writers, editorialists, columnists. Yeah, I, I mean, like we I do have a staff and, and I'm very grateful for them because, you know, they do an amazing job. It's always clear to me how big you guys are when you guys do your end of the year list and you guys have so many end of the year lists uh, for best record of the year. Yeah, we kind of give it up to a lot of these guys, even like the photographers and stuff who go out to, we assign to different uh, festivals around the world and stuff like that. I mean, you know, I'm very, as an owner and stuff like that, yeah, of course, like I'm, I'm super hands-on. You know, I, I think a lot of different company heads and stuff like that, they're they're very, maybe, you know, I don't, I don't know, like maybe hands-off to certain things that they don't want to do. But I do like to get my hands dirty and I do love to go to shows, of course. I mean, that's like my favorite part. I mean, why do this if you're not going to be at shows as often mm -hmm. as you can be and, and be part of the scene that you 
you know, you kind of, you know, that you work in and, and you always want to give back to. Yeah, that's a good pivot actually into Slay at Home Fest. So, you know, obviously the whole industry has changed. Every industry has changed. Um, I'm kind of, I've got one foot in both. I've got, you know, the restaurant industry has completely changed and, you know, many of our restaurants are shut down and many of our employees are, are out of work and it's just, it's horrible. But also, you know, as, as, um, as the co-founder of Blacklight Media Records, you know, my, my bands aren't able to tour um, and no bands are able to tour. So um, you came up with Slay at Home, which is just genius. But, but, you know, other than, other than watching them and enjoying them, I don't know a whole lot about it. What was the impetus for that? What's the future of that? Well, I, I started it and uh, it was really at the the early stages of the pandemic. And it really started because I wound up talking to a lot of my friends. You know, I was on the phone with Ben Wyman. I was on the phone with Dave Davidson of Revocation and, you know, uh, Trevor Black Dahlia Murder. And, you know, like we are good friends and we just, you know, were because we weren't hanging out in person. We were kind of like still keeping things alive, you know, by talking over Zoom and the phone and whatnot. And kind of just hearing everyone's story about like how their, you know, their whole year wound up getting canceled, essentially, you know, their, their year of, of uh, touring wound up getting canceled. And I, and you know, like they weren't really sure what they were going to do and where the income's going to come in and what's going to happen. And it just made me realize like how completely fucked we really are at, in music, you know, that a lot of these guys, my close friends who are out of work and, not just like us as metalheads and us as a metal industry, but really the world, you know, I mean, look, how long has it been now? You know, it's since March and we still see no real signs. Uh, I mean, sure. They've, they've made some like caveats here and, you know, some band-aids and whatnot, you know, with, with certain industries, but as a whole, like, you know, and, and when we talk about things going back to normal, you know, it's going to be a long time, a long time. So I wound up kind of looking at things early on and there was actually a uh, festival that was put on. I think it was uh, maybe Warner Brothers or I don't remember, like a really big major label wound up taking their hand and trying to do a festival. It left a really sour taste in my mouth because what you know they hyped it up and they wound up putting uh, it out there that they were doing this for charity and whatnot. But the I had a couple things that I really didn't like about it. First and foremost is that you had to donate to the company. So that means that it wasn't that transparent. For all we know, for your $100 that you wound up pledging, they could take 90 for themselves and pledge $10 to the actual you know, cause, which really, as somebody who has been given a charity and, and worked with charities for over 10 years now, you know, as a vegan, I should say, that whole side of my life really started... Um, you know, I've been vegetarian, vegan for really, really long time. And every single year for my birthday, I actually wind up donating to animal rescues around the world. And it's become a really big part of my life. And so, you know, I, I've kind of grown to know which charities are full of shit and stuff like that. So really looking at what the what this company was doing, I, I thought it was really sour. And the other thing was that when the show actually came out, the people were donating for it was all previously recorded material, you know, so like it was, you know, this pop star at South by Southwest 2007. It was another rap artist at you know, this festival in 2014. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is what the big hype was like. This is not even new. This isn't even current. It's not even it doesn't even speak of what's going on around the world right now. So I wanted to really change that. And I, I wound up coming up with Slay at Home. 
um, because I, I wanted people out there to know that first and foremost, this is for charity. This is as transparent as you can get because I don't even touch the money, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm not doing this to, if anything, it actually cost me money to put these on. That first one cost me several thousand dollars to actually put on and it, and it came out of my pocket, you know? So it's really an effort to, to work with charity, to do, you know, good causes out there, to have fun with, you know, my friends who are out of work, to keep them relevant, to keep them, you know, playing, to keep them alive. Uh, I make sure to have, you know, the website, if you go to the Slay at Home website, there's actually a merch section of every artist that is partaking in, you know, each, uh, each month's episode. So it's kind of like, you know, like, Hey, you saw the show now go over to the merch section, you know, buy something from them. Um, and really a way for the community to be able to still watch something and connect and talk to each other and the artists, you know, cause a lot of the artists who are on each episode and even the ones who aren't, you know, they show up in the chat room. And they talk to fans and stuff like that. So it's really just a awesome communal vibe. And it's completely free. You know, it's all for a good cause. And I'm not trying to charge anyone or anything like that. So I don't know. There's a set of principles that I really had for Slay at Home that'll never change. You know, it's all for the greater good of metal and the causes that I'm picking each month. And that's really important to me. Uh, It's amazing stuff what you're doing. We, you know, just, uh, you know, as live shows and performance is such a huge part of, of what connects fans to metal and not having that. It's been a real void. And so any live streams um, that, that are, you know, I just so I mentioned earlier, me and Matt were talking about the Mr. Bungle stream that just happened. I mean, it was just, it just, it felt great. I got a bunch of people, a bunch of my friends to buy in. We all bought tickets. We're all texting each other during the show. And it, it was obviously not the same as going to a show, but it felt great to be connecting in real time via text while watching, you know, a live show. And, and um, I've done that as well with the Slay at Home. So my, my, my next, I have, I have one sort of two prong question for you. Um, we don't want to take, we don't want to take your whole night. And, but I know Matt has some questions as well, but you know, it's basically the same question, but to, for two different areas. Like, what determines who plays Slay at Home? Is it you know? Are you are you curating um, the bands that that appear, or how, what's that process? And then also, you were saying earlier, you know, just how busy you are, and there's only so many posts that you can post to the site because you know for saturation, and you want people to have eyes on things. And so I don't know what the magic number of posts per day is for Metal Injection, but you know, also how do you determine? what you are going to write about and what you are. I know you've, you've been very kind to me in the past and, and I've asked you to feature some things and you've done it and thank you very much. But just in general, like, is there a formula or like what, what determines what gets on the site and what determines uh, what bands get on Slay at Home? Uh, well, uh, that is very different process, so I can answer them separately. Sure. So with Slay at Home, I do curate, um, you know, especially that first two day festival, uh, you know, that happened. It, it almost killed me to be honest with you. Yes. I curated everything I wanted up putting all the cover collaborations together um and you know at the end of the day they were i was working with over 200 people you know that included managers and you know musicians and stuff like that and then i had you know mixers and stuff like and there was just files like i mean files all day long like coming in and out And, and you know then of course the editing that had to be done and and upload and and you know like really teach myself how to actually wind up pulling off a live stream because it's not something I've ever done before. So there was a lot of moving parts to it. And I still continue to curate each monthly episode as well. I mean, of course, it's been 
amazing that since I've been doing this, I, it's been, had such a great response that now I'm getting pitched. You know, of course, when you start anything, uh, you know, no matter what it is, like people don't know what to expect and they don't know what it is until it's there. So I couldn't be happier that, you know, that original festival that window coming out, really everybody who was part of it trusted me enough to be part of it, you know, and it was, I mean, I wound up getting like Gavin Rosdale on it and, and that blows my mind, you know, this is like this guy, like how did, how did he trust me to do this? I don't know, but you know, the way I talked about it and then I told them my principles, they were all, they just thought it was a really good thing at the right time. I wound up getting a really cool group of bands together, but yes, absolutely. So they came through and it was the first, you know, it was the, the maiden voyage. And after that, like once I brought it back as a monthly thing, people were already somewhat familiar with it. And the longer I do it, the more familiar they are with it. And the more bands hear about it and they start reaching out to me, you know, and, and managers and publicists and whatnot, they now reach out to me and, and tell me like, oh, I have a band who might be interested in this. You know, what do you think? And I, I could either say yes or no, you know, depending on on if it's something I'm into. At the end of the day, it's still a curated effort. And the hardest part of all of it is the putting together these cover collaborations that I do. Right. They are from scratch. And uh, sometimes it's like very, you know, I have to rack my brain like, well, who would be a great voice for this song or who would be a great guitar player for this song? And, you know, I'll go from there. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that I know, uh, you know, after 17 years, I've met so many amazing players that there's just like this never ending well of amazing players that I could really ask. Hmm. And if you know, one guy can't do it for one reason or another, like there's other players I could I could potentially ask. As far as getting bands on metal injection, uh, we run about 15 posts per day. And you're absolutely right that oversaturation is something that we have to consider. And that's definitely where help comes in, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we have a staff of writers, uh, some of them who have columns and editorials and stuff like that. So and we run them daily. So, you know, uh, uh, and we have news posters. And so a good chunk of it is, you know, kind of obvious and what's going to be there for the day. As far as premieres, that's definitely a day-to-day thing. I wound up getting pitched hundreds every day, you know, and and of course a large chunk of my day is emails and yep. you know talking to publicists and managers, labels and whatnot, and you know, and same same thing. Almost it's almost kind of the same, and and that you're curating, you know, like what goes on the site, the same way I curate what goes on Slay at Home. And you kind of figure out like, well, you know, this band, you know, and and the truth is at the end of the day, it's really about what we like, you know, and even if it's something that I personally might not like, I could, you know, maybe send it to, you know, one of my writers or something and and see if they like it, you know, maybe they want to write about this band because, you know, they have a better background in new metal than I do or, or thrash metal or something like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that we could give coverage to this band at the end of the day. So of course there's a lot that gets left out, you know, but, and that's just the nature of it. Um, but we, you know, I try to find the good in most things. So, you know, we try. Amazing. Absolutely. You know, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but what I wanted to kind of break apart is you kind of have a disproportionate place for yourself in the world of music journalism, I think, relative to other sites. You know, you're obviously very niche, but you're kind of, you know, you're providing a full-time income for a couple people and you're, you know, and you're getting a lot of hits. 
how do you feel big sites are missing on opportunities to profit? And also, what can smaller but ambitious sites do to kind of start to grow to be a metal injection type force? Man, <laughs> okay, so that second half of that question, I wish I could, you know, if I had like a formulaic answer, like, I mean, I could probably make money on that alone, you know, it's giving away the secret. <laughs> the truth is, I, I kind of have no idea, you know, um, I think we're very fortunate that we made a lot of the right moves at the right times. I think some of it is longevity, you know, I mean, you know, it's 17 years, it's kind of become like a, a staple. I think at least I pride myself on, you know, certain ideas. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, if you took away everything from me, you know, like you can't take my ideas, you know what I mean? So stuff like Slay at Home and On the Record and, and certain editorials that I've done throughout the years that wound up getting really big attention, you know, um, they were they were pivotal moves, you know, and, and of course it allows my job to stay interesting. And I always say that, you know, the hardest part of my job is to figure out how to be, you know, more interesting than the next guy, how to create something new, you know, with within the circle of what we're doing, you know? Yeah. I mean, cause at the end of the day, really what I care about most is that I still enjoy my job after all this time and keep it interesting, you know? Mm -hmm. And as far as monetizing, I think what we realized is that we could monetize in areas outside of the conventional methods of, you know, banner advertising and stuff like that, you know, through sponsorships, through paid, you know, paid, uh, paid posts through, you know, monetizing your, your assets for all they're worth. You know what I mean? So we've, accrued 1.2 million followers on Facebook, which is nothing to scoff at. And really, when we realize that people are willing to to advertise through our Facebook page alone, you know, we kind of realize that there's like an untapped market, you know, in a lot of the assets that we have. So it's not just about the banners. It's not just about the site, but like really the collective unit of the brand, you know, and, and where it lays in all its uh, platforms. Does that leave you any time to actually play music yourself these days? What's happening there? Oh my God. Yes. Sort of. <laughs> um, it takes a long time. So I actually just put out a record last Friday. It's a death metal record with my friend, Nick. It's called a band called Night Soil. And in very similar fashion to uh, slay at home. Like, you know, it, it, it's, it's something similar where I actually have a different singer on every single track. Oh. So, you know, the first track on the record features Jessica Pimentel mm -hmm. from Morgan New Black. She's a very good friend of mine. Uh, I have Dave Davidson, a revocation there, Tre uh, Trevor from Black Dahlia Murder, James from Ghost, Aaron Heinold of Hive Smasher, Doug uh, more from Pieron. And it's just this really ignorant slam death metal thing. It's it's just like a totally fun project that I wound up doing with my friend Nick. But it it took quite a while, you know, to put together um, simply because there's just so much work going on. My band, uh, Mika's Murder, we're still on hiatus, but, you know, we still send files once in a blue moon. And one day, maybe we'll dust off those files and, you know, finish the next record. But, you know, really, the only downtime that we have in the music industry is December. And I'm making a pivotal move in my life right now. I'm actually going to go out to L.A. this December. And I, I wound up, uh, which, I, I, Chris, I've told you about before. And, you know, I'm going to be out there in a few weeks. And I'm kind of looking forward to spending some time, some downtime alone 
to to kind of work on some music, you know, that uh, I haven't really got to do in a while, you know. That's great. But of course, you know, I awesome. keep I keep busy and I, I play every single day because of Slay at Home now, you know, because I'm doing these like covers with mm-hmm. with my heroes. I mean, how amazing is that? You know, I mean, like I'm I don't know when this is going live, but I can probably tell you now that I'm I'm working on a song with Marty Friedman, you know, all day today. And it's just been an honor and it's been, you know, mind blowing. I mean, he's like my guitar god. You know, I, I grew up listening. You know, I, I'm a drummer, but like I always had that guitar envy. Mm-hmm. I listen to his his work, you know, his his solo albums, and I'm just blown away. So to be able to to create music with him is just bewildering. Yeah, do you, are you doing all that with the the, the Roland TD50? Uh, I I just bought a uh, Roland VAD 503. It's the one that uh, Jay Weinberg from Slipknot is promoting right now. Okay, yeah, it's like the same brain basically. Yeah. Yeah, I just got the TV 50 and to your point, we haven't done a thing yet, but Monty Pittman, um, if you know who that is. Of course, yeah. Love Monty. Him and I are going to start doing some stuff together, which is same kind of thing, like to, to be able to just same you know have all these friends that are such amazing players and to be able to just you know i mean i'm not i'm not a very good drummer i mean i can i can hold time but um it's just really exciting i'm looking really forward to to doing a lot of that next year at the end of it all like you know we're fans first we're players first it's in our heart to do this kind of thing you know we're towards the end of the year here can you highlight a couple of your favorite records of the year the first one that comes to mind is igor you know, I G O R R R. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Of course. Fucking love. So it's, uh, you know, fronted by Gautier Seri, who's a friend of mine. I love his work. What else? Oh, Oh Brother. Literally yeah. one of my favorite bands in the world. They're not, they're not so metal, but I adore Oh Brother. Yeah, I have that record. Good record. Great record. Paradise Lost. I mean, I've always been a Paradise Lost fan. Love them. Uh, Hex Vessel. A.A. Williams. Svalbard, Killer Be Killed. Is that out yet? Killer Be Killed, or is that coming out this week or soon? It's not out yet, is it? I have it, but I think it's coming out soon. Yeah, so everything I've heard so far is great. Yeah, it's just an amazing record. Uh, Skeletal Remains. It's a yep, awesome. Yep. I have that too. High record rules. The new Spirit Adrift is great. Yep. And I'll knock rock. There's so many good ones, man. Uh, Envy, Ishan, Lamb of God, even is is fucking a killer record. Yeah, there's there's no end of of amazing records out there. It's been a really it's been a really great year for metal, not for shows and not for life, but for for releases. It's been a really 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 great year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, but I'm like that every year. I, I listen to so many releases, and like I, you know, at the end of the year, like we were talking about the end of the year list. I, I like to me, it's it's a job to get it down to twenty. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. We should let you go soon, Matt. You got any, anything else you want to you ask? No. I think that's a good place to call it. Thanks so much for coming on, Frank. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. All right. So that was awesome. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? 
Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.